that's why we get distracted is our brains when we are focused actively look for distractions hi i'm jason hi i'm leah and i'm dre and this is the post normal show so today i was sitting on the couch i was doing work and there was this super loud banging on the door like boom 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 and i honestly thought that the police were there like like it was the kind of knock that you only hear on a on a tv show when the police arrive and uh, it was just a food order but i guess they're trained now to to bang really loud on the door so that you know that your package has arrived i kind of thought it was hilarious and terrifying at the same time but it totally threw me out of work. Fun little distraction for you. <laughs> the nice loud noise. That's a common distraction. Well, my, my biggest concern was getting to the door in time to say thank you to the driver and, and then bring the stuff in. And, and then I started thinking about how this was actually a wonderful distraction from work in that now I had to do a whole bunch of things. I had to go into the ritual of bringing something into my home from another place. Now we all have to do that differently, or or maybe we do, some of us do, some of us don't. But wash my hands at least three times, make sure that I open things and, and then remove the biggest package, the biggest outdoor, or the package that was outdoors, bring it back outdoors. Anyway, yeah, it was a distraction, but now I have greens, which is nice. This was the one of these box of produce services, which for me, yeah, yo, yeah, sorry, Far, like a farm. I got distracted. Box or <laughs> I like I thought of an idea, and I started to write it in in my notes so that I could bring it up later. And I'm like, oh, this is really good. Everyone's gonna like this little idea. I actually don't remember what it's called. Uh, I thought that it was like some wonderful farmer local organic thing, and then uh, and then my wife was like, no, no, it's just it's just from the food terminal. It's just a box from the food terminal. But they get their produce from local farmers. Yes, they do. So. And they usually give us like one giant turnip that takes up about a quarter of the box. And I just go, ugh, how are we going to eat that? <laughs> but it's still nice. It's still nice. Nice to have. I don't think I've ever bought a turnip before. I never would. <laughs> Leia, what's the theme of our show this week? Distractions. <laughs> we have had a one. number of them since we started recording this. <laughs> Look at that. It's super easy. What was the biggest distraction that you encountered this week? I had a very weird week. It was kind of all over the place. But the the thing that I kind of did that directly relates to distractions, apart from, you know, the majority of my life, was a dopamine detox. So I set aside a day where I cut out all of the things that provide instant gratification. So no social media, no going online, no watching Netflix, no eating sugar, none of that stuff. All of that was cut out. And so the idea is you do that for a day and you give your dopamine receptors a rest. So the next day, all the things that uh, you think of as being instant gratification, you're not as drawn to those things because you're not getting that same high hit of dopamine. 
So you gravitate more towards work that is lower dopamine and you're more interested in that and getting more out of that from a dopamine perspective. So I don't think it works when you do it for one day. I think it's something you need to do on a prolonged basis to really rewire your brain. But it was an interesting experience to have a day where I kind of had to sit with myself and not have all of these other instant gratification type of distractions. As you know, in February, I went to Puerto Rico for a month and I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to just relocate there for a while and try a different kind of lifestyle. And I feel it was a bit like doing this dopamine detox in the sense that the urgency to check social media and keep a hawkeye on my email and all that just disappeared where I would spend the day waking up in the morning, finding a thing to do and focusing my attention on doing that thing. And coming back, I didn't feel a withdrawal. I didn't feel the need to have to check my phone or check my computer. Yeah, that's the idea. So it's like you rely on those things less and then suddenly the things that you got less of a dopamine hit from, like for instance, being productive and getting that work done, like for you, Jason, maybe that's working on your your novel that you were working on. That sort of idea then translates into you don't need the sugary stuff all the time. Yeah, you get into the sustenance. It's it's not just the quick hits and the and the constant change. It's it's a slow build up of reward like the reward starts to build on itself and get bigger and you feel like you want to get into it more and you're you're getting something deeper out of it so when dre was talking about that and and i was thinking about the distraction at the front door too with the banging there's this pretty common concept now of of maker time and and manager time or makers and takers and I've been in both situations that the, the taker time, the management time, you're, you're flitting and jumping around from task to task really quickly and checking in on a whole bunch of things and, and checking off boxes. And that can be your own little dopamine hit, right? Of, of feeling the satisfaction of, okay, now I've, I've checked in on this person. I've checked in on this person. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And instead of actually sitting down and getting something that requires a longer depth of thought accomplished. And it's really easy to start to fool yourself with these productive tools and Pomodoro and everything else. And the Pomodoro technique is where you set a timer and you try to get as much done as you can within 20 minutes or whatever. It's easy to fool yourself that you're actually accomplishing something. So when I was thinking about distractions this week, I was thinking mostly about what does a distraction actually mean to me? And for me, it just means that you're losing focus. And that focus could be a positive focus or it could be a negative focus. And I'd, I, I, I want to throw this back to you guys for discussion. What do you consider to be a, a positive distraction versus a, a negative distraction? I like where you went with that because I also wrote down that there was um, this sort of dichotomy, like there's two sides to it. There's distraction and then is the other side attention because we do a lot of designing around attention and capturing attention, but not necessarily 
around distraction, right? In some cases that we do, and I've got an example that I want to share at some point around that. But I, I think maybe we put a little too much emphasis on the focus part as well, right? Because distraction can be things like daydreaming where your mind wanders off. And sometimes that sort of stuff can be really fruitful and productive mm -hmm. as well because you're letting your mind wander and you're making connections you might not have made otherwise. That can be valuable too. So there's maybe a balance needed between the two things, between focus and distraction or focus and attention or whatever it is, but it's not like you can sacrifice one for the other. I have a love-hate relationship with distraction and distraction is not a bad word in my eyes, but it is a word that can take on negative and positive connotations. When a distraction is is negative is when it you know pulls you away from something good, when it interferes with the responsibility and accountability, when it it's a meaningless distraction. Whereas a positive distraction is like you were saying, Jason, it could be a break from something stressful. It could be a refresh from creative pursuits. I'm a big fan of the the messy desk philosophy. A lot of people say, oh, clean desk, clean mind, so on and so forth. But there are some creative professionals out there that that are like, no, it's the opposite. The messy desk is what you want because you might know the thing you need to reference is somewhere over there. And when you reach for it, you you pick up something else and a new dot is in, introduced to your connection of dots and that distraction might lead you down another path creating something even better than when you set out to do. Or you knock over a cup of coffee and it spills and you start scrambling <laughs> and then you open up a drawer and you find something that you hadn't seen in like four years. Sparks an idea. But yeah, I think there are good and bad distractions and stumbling upon good things is the great distraction and then you have the bad distractions accidents and loud noises and disruptions like people knocking on your door or people being insensitive in the workplace with open concept office situations yeah that'll go away <laughs> we'll go see away. We'll yeah see cubicles are that. coming back <laughs> herman miller and Steelcase. we're all gonna be we're all gonna be in little glass boxes now Feed. we might as well go full bubble boy yeah, we we we'll all walk around in those giant sumo uh, mm -hmm. suits or bubble the zorbs. Is that what they're called? Zorb. It's called a zorb. Yeah. Is it short for is it short for absorb? Like, no, I think it's just a Z orb or a Z orb. Oh. Okay. So now we're distracted again. <laughs> yeah, put us so, back on track. It sounds like there's different quality of distractions. Right. Like there is the really like disruptive stuff, but then there's a the really good stuff. And I wanted to share one idea that comes out of designing for healthcare, which should be a thing that we're all sort of thinking about right now as designers and practitioners and all of that. This particular example centered around the MRI experience for children. So it was created by GE and their healthcare division. I think the researcher on this was Doug Dietz or the designer. And it used to be that when you took kids in to get an MRI, it was a really scary experience. And so about 80% of children had to be sedated to go through the MRI machine. And what they did is that they ended up converting the MRI rooms into this multi-sensory experience that was more like playing. And so the entire room was set up to be a distraction. So you came in and then you got to experience like you're going to go on this ship and you're going to hunt for treasure or you know you're going on this experience instead of just going into the the hospital and doing this really yeah. awful thing 
So it was really great because what ended up happening is that the children were immersed in play. They were completely distracted from the actual experience that they were there to get. And the sedation rate dropped from 80% to only two children in two years where they had implemented this. Takes this antiseptic environment and turns it into, and a terrifying antiseptic environment that's not at all friendly or receptive to kids where their only distraction is to think of the horrors that await them because this is some place that has nothing to do with children or imagination. It is only to do with things that they completely don't understand. Yeah, it's like borrowing from Disney to do healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. So it's that storytelling aspect, it's that distraction aspect, it's that play aspect, the imagination stuff that we talked about before. And so they bring all of that into designing in a very deliberate way a sort of solution that can alleviate so many problems that has so many cascading effects because now not only are the children excited to be there like they want to come back and keep playing but the actual medical impact of not having to sedate all of these children the cost of doing that the savings that come from that it had compounded benefits that extended beyond the immediate experience so and, and the danger of of sedation with children too because it it's well it's dangerous to to have to sedate anybody but getting the the formula right for kids because they're so small is difficult and dangerous and unnecessary if if you set it up this way what's amazing is that l- today literally today i saw someone present this material so it's getting some attention I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's a few years old and the idea has been around, but the idea of distraction in pediatric care and pain is this concept that's sort of taken off in the past few years. And so how are we designing things? Because we're designing things for attention. So, you know, Dre, you've been in marketing. You probably have some thoughts on how everyone goes about capturing attention in marketing. This is kind of the opposite of that, right? Like they're not trying to get the attention of the kids. They're trying to distract them from the real thing that's happening to them. Yeah, I've seen some similar things around that going as far as using VR. And even with Uh, dental offices these days I think they now give you the option to put your earbuds in and listen to your music while they do these procedures on you and and I and I believe that when you distract yourself by listening to music or a podcast or something that you enjoy there there's a a reduction in the sensation or the feeling of the procedure that's going on I also was looking at a study that Microsoft Canada did in 2015 on focus. Focus once clocked in at around 12 seconds. Believe it or not, that's like the the longest your brain can focus. Apparently our brain physiologically will go into scanning mode, actively looking for a distraction. That's one of the reasons why we get distracted is our brains, when we are focused, actively look for distractions. And I think this is a a primal instinct that we have. It's also one of the reasons we hallucinate, but we'll get back to that later. Yeah. So this study, there's just a few points I wanted to knock off on this. They, When they started doing this study, it started with attention at around 12 seconds and year over year had dropped down to eight seconds, but one second a year. So the average attention span or focus period is about eight seconds. That's one second less than a goldfish, just to put that into perspective. 
There's 759 hours every year lost by employees due to distraction. If you break that down into seven and a half hour workdays, that's 101 business days a year per employee lost to distraction. Phones are checked on average every 12 minutes. And the average person resuming work takes about 23 minutes to get back into the swing of work after they've been distracted. And the increase in distractibility has been correlated with a 10% point loss in IQ as well. It's all horrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's in the this report that we will link in the show notes for as we do all the things we reference in this show. So did you want to talk, Jason, about the hallucination aspect? I actually wanted to talk about the, I wanted to talk about the dentist thing one more time. And I'll, I'll get back to the hallucination in a, in a little bit. I'm a very curious person. And the, and the last time I was at the dentist, I had to have a tooth extracted. There was a root canal issue. Lots of fun. Not something that you want to have to do all the time. And I did not get VR and I had to listen to the tune tuneless sort of humming to the horrible radio that's that's always on in the background but I asked my dentist how the anesthetic worked because I have this fear that it's not going to work so I wanted to to get a, a scientific understanding of it and my dentist actually grabbed a Kleenex box and he drew a diagram he's like nobody ever asked me this and then he drew a, a like a really cool diagram on the bottom of a Kleenex box, obviously this was a while ago, but because we don't go to dentists anymore, but it showed what an anesthetic actually does. He he said that all it does is it is is it acts like a like insulation. If you understand electricity and you've got conductive tissue and then non-conductive tissue, non-conductive means that the electricity can't pass through it, right? So you've got your nerves and they they act like wires and then the anesthetic just creates this block but he said what can happen though is that if you get too nervous and you're focused so much on what's happening and you focus so much on the pain or that you anticipate your nerve endings will actually jump across that gap it's like you're you're increasing and increasing the charge to such a point that it it arcs across even the anesthetic and you'll feel the pain and i'm like why are you telling me this this is terrifying <laughs> like now but he's like no don't worry we'll give you an extra shot of anesthetic the distraction is actually really really important and and to learn how to distract yourself from pain and to distract yourself from other types of distractions is actually a form of meditation which is to be able to dismiss those distractions. I sat there in the in the dentist chair and I tried to just become present and aware and that actually brought me into a space where I didn't feel as anxious if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I'm going to pick up on this idea of and anesthetic. So I've talked about dystopias a lot in the past. I might have mentioned that in an earlier episode as well. And I've described these sort of positive images of the future that get peddled out by all sorts of people that typically lack critical thinking and they're just like fluffy images as being anesthetics. 
right? That there are anesthetics that sort of numb you from the problems and the issues that you're having right now. And so that they can serve as a distraction from these deeper level problems that are occurring because we just tell everybody, yeah, we'll just aim for this future instead of dealing with the depth of the problems that we have. And so I wonder if we create all sorts of different anesthetics, different distractions throughout society um, at all sorts of various levels, like from the Netflix, from the everyday stuff, right up to the, you know, the visions that we have of the future or the visions that we have for society. And what are all of those different ways and how do they impact us? I think that I used to get on the streetcar and look at all the people that were looking down at their phones and watching their videos and nobody was looking up, nobody was interacting. And I thought, wow, you've got a perfect society of sheep that all they need is their little dopamine hits and they will be content as long as they have a little bit of food and shelter it's the apple 1984 commercial yeah except that it's brought to you by apple which is (laughs) really interesting which has created the 1984 that it was raging against in 1984 (laughs) Or just making you think that the the greatest evil was actually these boring machines. So take this beautiful, sexy, awesome supercomputer and have it in your pocket and connect it to your wrist and have it with you every day, all the time, and look at it every 12 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, and make sure that you get your, your fix. And then, you know, stay part of a functioning capitalistic, I don't know, whatever the society wants you to be, yeah. Strive to be the alpha sheep. The creative sheep. Something that you had mentioned about, uh, what was it, that managing the managing mindset versus the other mindset? There was this... Uh, yeah, you can call it makers versus takers, which is often sort of thrown out there, but but I, I call it manager... Uh, I don't call it this. I, I think it was coined by Kevin Kelly or someone, but mm-hmm. maker time versus manager time and the, the idea that managers are perpetually distracted and jumping and flitting from thing to thing and makers need that deep focus that if you take that away from them like you said it can take just even working on a menial task can take 23 minutes to get back into it now if you're doing deep thinking and and a deep task where you might need two hours to get into a flow situation it can be enormously disruptive. Yeah, there are the two books that I read right around the same time. And one is a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport that goes into the importance of focusing on what you're doing and just eliminating all of these distractions. I thought that was a really good book. There's another book that I read right around the same time called The Secret War Between Downloading and Uploading. And downloading being a shorthand for content consumption and uploading being shorthand for content creation and that we are too busy downloading, that we are information diabetics in the amount that we download and we take, 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 and we rarely ever contribute. The Pareto principle comes in really nicely here where 20% of the people that create the content that 80% of the people download. Those two books were really good references. I've experimented with different 
tools and techniques to increase my productivity, but one that seemed to work the best for me for sitting down and getting stuff done was A, putting your phone on airplane mode or putting it away altogether. And I created a user on my computer that I call Focus. And that computer user, every thing that facilitates communication, internet, and so on is disabled. And I have to log out of my current user to get into it. And in order for me to do something small like check mail or WhatsApp would mean I would have to log into my main user to do that. And it's a bigger hassle to do that than it is to just remain in my focus state. So when I'm in deep writing mode, deep thinking mode, I tend to turn on focus as my user account on my computer. And that allows me to spend an hour, two hours, three hours maximum working on something. So the upload downloading thing is an interesting sort of way of looking at it because so we do foresight work and foresight work means scanning for signals. And so really good futurists are always scanning for signals that are out in the market. And so you're picking up these little blips that are on the horizon and looking at something and saying, oh, that's interesting. What could that turn into? And part of that is being distracted, right? It's like looking for the unusual thing. Sometimes you do it deliberately and you go hunt for them. And other times it's like, I just came across a random article and I don't know when it's going to be useful, but I want to know this stuff in case it is. And some of that information can be really useful down the road in doing work as well. When you remember, oh, right, I read that thing. I need to go find that again, because that would be really applicable here. And it becomes a challenge because you never really know what is useful, like what is a good piece of information and when it's going to become useful. You're just finding little bits and holding on to them in case they are, which can be challenging. Like that's exhausting too. It's exhausting to keep track of all of those little bits. And I find it's not enough to just collect the bits unless you do something with it. And a very simple saying that I heard once is writing is thinking. So I find that when I'm finding a lot of bits or signals within a certain area, I can't just collect them. I have to open up a doc and write some thoughts around them and at least create some kind of a net to capture them all in. Whether that gets published or not doesn't really make a difference, but it means that I've done, I've put some effort into thinking about the signals and not just collecting the signals. That's actually a fantastic way of remembering. And there's a guy, of course I can't remember his name, but who talks to and teaches students on how to use this exact type of technique, which is, it's a form of recall where you are cognitively, well, you're, you're literally using your brain to reinterpret the things that you've just been exposed to and learned, which means that you set it up better in your brain to remember it again and recall it later. If you don't do that, if you just consume, consume, consume and read a million things and you're like, oh, that, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. One will replace the next, will replace the next, replace the next ad infinitum. But when you do exactly what you just said, you're reinterpreting the, the inputs and you're allowing your brain to commit the things that you've been exposed to, to more of your long-term memory. 
So I'll add to that because there's another little piece of information to go along with it in terms of memory, where we are now shifting towards rather than remembering content, remembering where that content is stored. And so we remember where we keep information as opposed to the piece of information itself, like we're cataloging instead of recalling. My problem is that I'm like the squirrel in my backyard where I'm like, where did I put that? Where did I put that? Where did I put that? And I'm, I'm running around and I'm checking about 50 different places that it could be that I might have put it in my Notion account. I might have written that note in my notes. I might have texted it to myself. And there's just almost an infinite amount of places. And I'm literally running around digging little holes looking for that nut that I buried somewhere. And it's 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 a horrifying situation to be in when you need something really quickly and but it's also i don't know it's kind of like that chaotic desk that that dre talked about before where maybe i'll find it maybe i won't i don't know exactly where all the little pieces are and i'm still working on that productivity porn of of finding the perfect system where i can I can have and input everything in in exactly the right way. But my fear is that the productivity system itself and setting it up and trying to tweak it is its own little dopamine fix. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I struggle with where do I keep all these things and whether it's Google or Evernote or the, I don't know, half a dozen other tools that I use, I've found myself so many times trying to recall something I'd written down, a screen capture from a presentation, just something, and looking everywhere to only realize it was in the last place I looked. You know, I could have sworn I put this in Evernote. I could have sworn <laughs> I saved this to Google. No, it was in an email. Something dumb like that. That, that idea of remembering where you put stuff away is still a very valuable tool or being able to have the discipline to just pick one place where you put stuff. Because if you can remember the keyword, then that's what you need. That's the real strength. And I agree that that we should try to retain things, not having to recall it from memory and know where to reference it is a very important skill to have but not to solely rely on. I don't think we can recall every, and we're just past that point now of we're bombarded with information left, right, and center that it's just so hard to keep track of it. Like I read some sort of statistic around the amount of information being produced is doubling at such a chaotic rate now that it's impossible to keep track of everything. So it's going to have some sort of effect on our brains and how we're wired as well, but it, it becomes sort of an, a monumental task to keep track of everything now and not to be distracted by everything. Like, how could we not be, especially when stuff is designed to distract us? Like, if we look at all the social media apps and the platforms and the games and everything that we've sort of structured our lives around now, our online worlds, that is entirely set up to distract us and to keep our attention on them and away from other things. Really scary stat that I heard just the other day, and I know I'm getting the numbers wrong, but the proportions are astronomical, but something like 90% of all the world's data that's been generated was done in the past month. Mm -hmm. Like That's how huge that is right now. 
and that will continue to get smaller. Ninety percent will be in the na- in the last two weeks, and then in the last week, and then the last day, and then <laughs> we'll get to the last second because it's just exponential in terms of who's capturing it and and how. What I was going to ask you guys was, how do you protect yourself from the noise, and how do you find the signal? And what I mean by that is. There is an infinite amount of data that we can expose ourselves to. And and how do you attempt to protect yourself from the infinite and allow yourself to gain some kind of focus? I think that's really difficult to do. It's like a constant struggle and challenge for me because I never know when something is going to convert to being useful. Like I have weird pieces of information in my head that I've pulled out in completely unexpected ways. Like for some reason, I know what all of the Austrian flirting techniques with fans are. I don't know why I know this. (laughs) I don't know when I read this, but I know what the techniques are and what they mean. And for some reason, I was having a meeting with somebody who does coaching and it came up. It came up like where I mentioned, like there's this whole other level of communication that can happen with objects. And so how do you build that into your particular session? It's this little piece of information I held on to for so long that served no purpose, but came became useful in one meeting. And so that distinction can be really hard. And I think where I try to sort of edit in my own mind is if I find something that's really interesting, I try to think about what can I do with this? Is this going to serve me at some point or can I let it go? And sometimes it's a conscious decision of like, okay, you know what? I can ignore this thing over here. That's not for me. That's for somebody else and figure that out in the moment. And sometimes, you know, you lose things where then you're like, oh God, where is this piece of information? Because that would have been really useful if I could just recall that. So (laughs) it's it's a struggle. It's a ongoing issue, I think, of trying to figure out what's useful and what isn't. I have a few things that I do to try to keep me on the straight and narrow. I keep a Trello board and I I make a list of what I think is important. I'm I just do too many things. Like I like making stuff and I like doing music and I like doing futurism stuff for work and I like creativity and art and all that stuff. So I have created a Trello board where I ranked what's most important so that when I do discover a piece of content, I have a better tool to assess whether or not I should act on it or whether or not I should deep dive into it. I'm the type of person that when I see how something is done, I get really inspired and I just want to go and do that. The other day I was looking at props, like how props are made for science fiction movies. And when I saw how it was done, I was inspired and I thought, oh, I could just go make a prop. I just wanted to go do that now but it didn't fit with my list of like that's not a rabbit hole worth getting into as much as i would love to get into it and it would have i would have tons of fun doing it it would just take away from these other things that i've deemed more important so that's one tool that i use to keep me focused but the other thing too is just this sounds cliche and cheesy but meditation just sitting down for a portion of the day It could be as little as 15 or 20 minutes and quite literally paying attention to what you're thinking about and letting the thoughts enter your brain 
and just watch them. Just see what comes in. Don't act on them. Don't judge them. Don't do anything. Just pay attention to what happens. And when you come out of 15 minutes of doing that, it feels to me like I have a better idea of what I should focus on. I don't get as anxious or stressed about not acting on something because I've already processed that this is a nice thought to have, but I don't need to act on that. I would love to add to that. I think that that might be the most important thing that anyone can do around dealing with the amount of information that we're exposed to and the amount of distraction we're exposed to and the challenge that our brain has, which is a limited machine that's that's been built over millions of years due to evolution and has not been primed for the situation that we're actually in, giving yourself that moment or those moments to just recognize itself and understand that none of these things are actually of exclusive importance. So I think sometimes you, if you look at all the information as being this river, this, this torrential river that's coming by, and the idea that you have to capture and understand this entire river is 100% impossible. It's kind of like that old proverb or idea that you never step into the same river twice because it's always flowing and changing. And if you, when you understand that, that, that you don't need to always be on top of Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and Gmail and email and work and all these other billions and billions of lists that are never going to stop. They're always going to keep coming at you and there's always going to be a thousand billion bajillion <laughs> quadrillion more things that you can just step into it when you need to step into it and deal with it and enjoy it in that moment. And then come out of it and be able to let go of the stuff that's going to go by. It's the same way with, with all the crazy amount of information that's coming at us. Takes practice and discipline. I'm going to, um, I'm going to out myself as the techno-optimist nerd that I am. But virtual reality is a great tool for focus. I'm a big fan of VR and every day i have a standing meeting with a friend of mine where we <laughs> we meet up and play ping pong and you know we're just standing in our respective living rooms and we play ping pong and the fact that you have a visor on your head means that you've blocked out any notification coming from your phone you can't easily check your phone and for that you know half an hour to 40 minutes that we play it's undivided attention, it's focus, we're having some fun, we're having a conversation. I really do truly feel like I'm in the moment when I'm playing these uh, VR things and it's about a half an hour a day that I spend doing this and I really, really like it. And it's a really interesting experience and you come out of it a lot more relaxed and chill than you do going in. But there is something to be said about putting a head-mounted display on your head and blocking out the world and giving yourself a moment of focus in a fantastical, interesting place. And I think VR therapy will be a thing. I think that could potentially be a very important aspect to 
modern life. We can't knock it because we're already glued to our phones. So why would you knock something like VR? It'll be interesting to see how quickly the therapeutic stuff gets co-opted for work, right? To really drill down and make us focus while we're doing work so that not a minute of productivity is lost. And that is already sort of happening now with workplace design. I've kind of got a pretty close up look at that stuff where it's being designed to, you know, track all of our attention, like even Zoom, all of these meetings, tracking our attention and making sure that we're there and present and doing the stuff that we're supposed to be doing and not off paying attention to other things, other screens, other things in the background. Yeah, there is that Zoom feature, right? That tracks yeah. people's eyeballs to, <laughs> which just makes me think you should just wear some googly eyes on a hat. Yeah. <laughs> and Zoom will think you're looking at your meeting. Well, there's people who are now printing out their photos and just putting that in front of the camera, right? Because you can't necessarily mm -hmm. tell. People are always going to find a way around these things, but that means that there's this whole cycle of co-opting and then finding ways to sort of subvert whatever is created to gain some control back. And I, I wonder if it does come down to an issue of control, like self-control, external control, all of that sort of stuff, the tensions that play out there. So I wanted to come back to a promise that I made to return to hallucinations. And I wanted to ask you guys if you've ever practiced or tried any sensory deprivation. I've been meaning to. And I know like Dre has talked to me about this a lot that I should go try this out. And at some point, maybe when we get back to some form of normal, that'll be something to do. That's probably not the sort of thing you want to be doing right now. like. <laughs> Lying no, maybe not. <laughs> Jason, you introduced me to sensory deprivation. I used to go every two weeks for maybe two years. And I vividly remember my very first float session and having that, you know, that cliched hallucination like Homer did in that one episode of The Simpsons. Everything that was cliche about it happened to me and I came out an absolute <laughs> convert thinking this is one of the coolest things. And now there are float tank places everywhere. So, yeah, yes, to answer your question, I, I am very familiar with it. Thank you for introducing me to it. But, yeah, what, what did you want to talk about more on this? I just think that it is it's fascinating that our brain is set up to be occupied it, it is searching for information and and stimuli and when it can't find it so we're we're in a like an absolute dirge of information right like or no is it the opposite well a dirge Dur is a slow march dirge is slow we're we're in a a deluge and what the Sensory deprivation does is it puts the brakes on that. You talk about taking a, a quick dopamine fast. This is like being shot into space. And literally, you feel like you're not distracted by gravity. You're not distracted by light. It's absolute pitch black. You're floating on water that's body temperature. It's got a high saline count so that you, you're buoyant and there's nothing there's nothing coming in at all and when you're in that situation it's very close to forced meditation i suppose 
you know, there's a bit too much to it in in that you you've got to climb into this box or this this container that this float tank, and and you've got to go to a place, and it's it's probably a lot more convenient to be sitting at home and get better at meditation. But this really takes you to that next level of meditation a lot quicker because it removes every single distraction that there is other than getting salt water in your eyes, which is bad. The way that I always describe it is that when you, you know, your senses are always processing something, no matter whether you're awake or asleep, you know, your pillow will still resonate the, the streetcar rumble down the street. So you're always processing something, but when you're in a tank, a float tank and all light and feeling and everything is taken away your senses have very very little to explore and to process so they become more and more heightened the same way that your pupils will dilate in a dark room they become more and more heightened to the point where they give up there's nothing to process so they start twiddling their thumbs and that's it when when your senses start to twiddle their thumbs that's the hallucination it's just making shit up to keep busy because they're normally always busy and that's a fantastic, interesting thing. And it's focus practice. And yeah, you take a shower before you go in. You take a shower when you get out. That's no different than going to the gym. It's rather than strength training, it's just focus training. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap up on. All right. Well, as, as always, we will have a deluge of information and links in the show notes for you to explore. So thank you for listening to us rant and ramble and muse about stuff this week hopefully it was a a pleasant distraction from your (laughs) day to day all right from all of us at the post normal show we will see you in the future